In this episode of Paid by the Word, Mike interviews Lydia Dishman, an experienced writer and contributing editor at Fast Company. Here's a snippet from their conversation. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and I and I loved. Um, I'm sorry for referring to something that you said before I hit the record button, but uh, it really resonated with me, which is that it's almost once you've got the lead done, that's almost ninety percent of the work. Uh, <laughs> and all your little Lego tiles fall snap into <laughs> yes, place. Everything <laughs> falls into place. Yes, and uh, and I have explained to people. I find myself explaining to people. Yes, if it's at the end of the story, I'm just assuming it's going to get cut. So you know, or or not or not get read. I mean, mm-hmm. we have the benefit of analytics now, and it's so very clear to see how readers jump away from a story midway. You can have a story that's a three minute read. And the average reader will spend 30, 45 seconds on it. So if you think about how quickly the eye can process and how quickly the brain can process, you know, that's, that's not a lot of reading. It's, it's a few sentences, maybe a graph. Well, hello there, and welcome to Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with professional writers and editors. If you are curious about what goes on in the minds of people who write and edit for a living, this podcast is for you. Thank you, Zoe. I'm Mike Barlow, your host and moderator. My guest in this episode is Lydia Dishman. Lydia is a business journalist, and her work has appeared in Fast Company, Forbes, Fortune, Entrepreneur Magazine, The Guardian, the New York Times, Popular Science, Slate, Yahoo, CBS Money Watch, U.S. Airways Magazine, and many other publications. Her articles have been syndicated by The Washington Post, MSNBC, Salon, and PC Magazine. One of Lydia's former editors describes her as a sharp, talented writer with a keen eye and a knack for turning just the right phrase where and when it's called for. A Bronx native and graduate of Fordham University, She writes about the intersection of technology, leadership, and innovation. Lydia is also an editor focusing on contemporary workplace issues. In my conversation with Lydia, we spoke about the nuts and bolts of good journalism, the need for diversity, both in the newsroom and when choosing sources for your stories, and why writers and editors should pay attention to a story's cadence and rhythm in addition to its content. I also asked her about our collective professional fixation with writing terrific lead paragraphs. Well, it serves a dual purpose. One, you want to hook the reader. And the other one is that you want to deliver as much information as you can right up top so that someone can decide whether they want to pursue the rest of the story. And that is a bit old school as well, because newspaper writing was always the reverse pyramid. You'd Mm -hmm. jam all the information up top and then, you know, maybe you got a little color at the bottom, um, just in case it gets cut. But I do think, and I had a wonderful editor uh, years ago when I was writing for CBS Money Watch. Thank you, David Hamilton. He was always on all the writers. Make sure you're not just doing a throat clearing exercise when you're writing those intro paragraphs. Like, get to the point. You can add color, and you're certainly encouraged to do that, especially, you know, for magazine feature writers. Sometimes a narrative lead takes you a little while to get to the meat. But the most important thing is you're drawing someone in and you're providing information. So that's a huge responsibility and one that not should be taken lightly. So that's why I spend so much time trying to get that right thing. And sometimes the lead is just one sentence. And 
and and that's okay too. What's the best way to describe the difference between writing and editing, and how do you manage to do both? Uh, it's a it's a delicate balance and a slippery slope all at the same time. When you are writing, you are exercising a different set of creative muscles. You are in charge of the words and the phrasing and the cadence. And when you are an editor, you are measuring others' words and phrases and cadences. And it's really important on the editor side to remember that you're not there to interject your voice into a story. Sure, there are style constraints with every publication, but it's important, I find, to preserve the writer's voice, just as it's important when I'm writing to preserve a voice. And as journalists, we tend not to be as voicey, but there is a certain style, I think, that I've cultivated over time. I love me some alliteration, and that makes writing fun for me. And so I appreciate it when I'm editing someone else's work, if they have that little bit of a creative oomph to their work. But as I said, it's it's a delicate balance. You have to move from wearing the control hat to the not-so-controlling hat. I'm so glad you mentioned uh, cadence and rhythm. Uh, It's very hard. I found it very difficult to edit for cadence and rhythm, and yet they're very important. what, how do you, uh, what are the red flags that, uh, that a piece needs a little more of, of a rhythmic balance and how do you achieve that? I think that obviously visually short choppy sentences are going to be very staccato even when you're reading it silently. But I tend to, and I do this with pieces that I've written myself, I will always read something aloud to myself. My cat has many hours of listening. <laughs> under her belt. But I think that it's really important to hear the words, even though the reader on the other end probably won't be reading anything aloud, nor will, unless they um, are, you know, hearing impaired, generally our readers are reading on their own and not having, uh, you know, auditory assistance. But it is important to hear the words, to hear the sentences spoken out loud. You can also catch the mistakes more easily that way. If if you're tripping over something when you're reading it aloud, you're gonna your eye is gonna trip over it maybe a second or third time when you're editing it. When you think of writers who uh, have have kind of mastered uh, the art of of rhythm, um, who who do you uh, who comes to mind? The same writers who inspire me, especially when I'm stuck (laughs) and I tend to spend extraordinary amounts of time working on leads uh, and not so much on on the rest of it because once you have the lead down you can pretty much everything else falls into place Uh, but the opening paragraphs are very important but I I tend to read the work of Susan Orlean who is a brilliant writer of nonfiction note how I said nonfiction and not just Uh, journalism, although she technically is a journalist, she does report on things, but she's really got a way with phrasing and she can always interject a little bit of idiosyncrasy into her writing when she's comparing things. And also, uh, I bet that 
some might be surprised to hear me say this, but Ginia Belafonte, who writes for the New York Times, she writes, I guess, I think it's called the Big City Column. I find her writing very smooth and easily digestible, especially because she's tackling very large topics. So that makes it interesting to read and also easier to incorporate what she's trying to say. So Lydia, tell us about your role as a content strategist. Uh, that sounds fascinating. What, what does the role entail? Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of a misnomer. Um, I think that, you know, it, if I was in a corporate environment, a content strategist would be very clear cut. You're masterminding whatever the company is putting out in terms of blog posts or um other, other types of content. But for me, I see the role of content strategist in my role at Fast Company as an editor of outside contributors. And so there's a level of needing to watch trends. What are people reading? What are they Googling? What are they looking for on social media in order to tap into, hey, maybe I have an expert that can do a hot take on this. And I hate to say that because it diminishes um, my writer's work. And I certainly have some very insightful, very astute contributors that I work with on a regular basis. And it's all sort of moving the pieces around to see what's going to resonate when. And that was never more important than at the beginning of the pandemic when people were scrambling to learn how to work remotely. And I had had many years of remote work under my belt. So I kind of knew what to sniff out, but I knew that that content was gonna be really important. So overnight when we all became coronavirus reporters on the coronavirus beat, this was my role is to find who was talking about it and advancing the conversation in a really insightful way about what remote work really was, what issues can arise, how best to be productive in a remote environment. And likewise with the, the second wave of the uh, civil rights movement after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others, there was a need for really insightful pieces from people of color talking about what it meant to be an ally, what diversity really was, what inclusion really looked like. And so I was on the hunt for finding those voices, amplifying those voices and putting them together in a strategic way that people who were privileged and part of the majority could learn and understand. I'm really glad that you mentioned uh, diversity because uh, this is something, uh, as a newsroom manager, uh, I know that that was one of the greatest challenges that, that we faced uh, back in the 70s and 80s. Uh, and so particularly in business and science, diversity is a challenge, and yet it's it, it needs to be done. It's a challenge that cannot that you can't shirk from or, or run away from, you know. And I admire editors who really uh, do their best to to move forward. How do you uh, how do you do that? What what tips do you have? Because um, because I I, t I just tend to get angry at people who tell me that they're well we're trying but we couldn't find anybody to hire you know and I just say then you're not trying hard enough. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is off. No, it's, it's getting um, off the script here. 
That's no, that that's totally fine. I, I think there's there are a number of ways to increase diversity. And obviously hiring is top of mind for a lot of people. You want diversity in your newsroom, so you have to go hire for it. And I think that the best way to do that is to expand your professional networks to start mentoring young journalists of color is a great place to start helping mentor young journalists from non-traditional schools so maybe you don't look at northwestern or syracuse maybe you go to a historically black college or university and see who's studying journalism there and offer an internship or a mentorship so that you can start building from the ground up and that this way it becomes easier to hire journalists of color down the road. Um, But barring that, I think that you really have to be mindful about your sources and you have to make a conscious effort to expand your sources. If you've got a story with four sources and three of them are middle-aged white guys, Present company excluded. Um, okay, great. It's, uh, <laughs> you know, it. You really need to figure out how to find some different voices to add some perspective to your stories, and that gets easier as you go along, as you expand your professional network. LinkedIn is an extraordinary resource for people. You can find experts anywhere, but barring that, if you need to find. Uh, let's say an academic, which, you know, it's always great to have an academic voice in an article when you need some uh, expert opinion. There are any number of assistant professors who would be more than happy to chime in on their area of expertise. And an assistant professor may not be tenured yet, probably isn't given the title. And so they are more likely to want to be quoted because that's going to help their career as well. So I find that that's an excellent resource. And then just sort of combing for entrepreneurs of color because they are in the trenches with their businesses And there are many professional organizations that bring together people from underrepresented groups in niche areas of industry that you can always find. So there are there are many ways to do it. I refuse to believe that there is a pipeline problem, both for hiring and for sourcing. So, you know, if anyone has an issue with that, I will be happy to (laughs) help them along and introduce them to some of the people in my network. I'm so glad that you mentioned both uh, both hiring, hiring writers and editors, and uh, making sure that your sources represent a diverse group. Um, that's something that when I write articles, I will go over. I'll go over my sources, and if they're not uh, if they're not a good blend and they don't represent a, a diversity, I will just keep interviewing until I've got. Mm-hmm. you know, a balance that, uh, that so I important. want. And it's, and does it take extra work? Yeah. But it's, it, this is work that's definitely worth doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm also, uh, so, so yeah, the, the sources also, uh, you know, of course we all tend to, uh, you know, for academic sources, it's great having, you know, it's great having professors from uh, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, NYU, Stanford, but there's also Morgan State, there's Grambling, there's Howard, there, there are plenty of universities out there that are, that are not, the usual suspects. And um, so thank you for, uh, thanks for going there. Lydia, which professional habits do you find especially helpful? 
routine is tantamount for me. As I said, I've been working remotely for uh, a number of years until we moved back to New York and I was going into the office more, but I found that simply getting dressed in real clothes in the morning was, was very, very helpful. And I know that the pandemic has wreaked havoc on a lot of people and they work from sweat with their sweatpants on all day. I actually did an article a number of years ago about the science behind dressing for work. Uh, and, you know, I was preaching to my own choir because I always bought into it. It puts you in a different headspace. You're ready to settle down. But I always found that the lack of commute was difficult sometimes to overcome because you really need to make that transition from your home to your workplace in order to get yourself into the mindset. So certainly now since March, I've been making a very conscious effort to go out and take a walk every morning early as if I was going to do my commute. Um, and I go in all kinds of weather. If it's raining, I'll put my hat on. You know, if it's too hot, I'll wear shorts. It doesn't matter. Got to get out there every single day. And then at the end of the day to sort of close the book on my day, I will take another walk about 30 or 40 minutes just to reset and come back in. Um, but I find that throughout the day, it's really helpful to to take breaks. Obviously, when I'm writing, I can sit very still for three hours at a time not terribly good for the body, not good for your eyes. So I've kind of forced myself to get up and do a couple of laps around the room <laughs> and then, and always leave a sentence in the middle so that I can come back and continue. Because I find that if I end the sentence, it's much harder to get back into the flow. So. Wow. That's great advice. I, I love that. I'm going to start uh, to <laughs> start doing that. Uh, I, uh, so, uh, Lydia, can you tolerate noise when you work or do you need a quiet place? I don't do well with noise. And it's definitely been a challenge because my husband is also working from home now and he appreciates having music on all day, every day. And I find that music definitely butts into my concentration because I am an auditory learner. So therefore, lyrics I can pick up very easily when I hear a song twice or three times, and then I'll be singing it in my head, which is not helpful when I'm trying to write or edit. So if he has to listen to music, it needs to be something that has no lyrics, or he has to put his headphones on. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but I do, I do need it to be quiet. I formerly danced, uh, and uh, anytime I hear certain, I mean, the Nutcracker, it's really hard, even <laughs> though there's no lyrics. When I hear yeah. the um, the the snow paw, I'm just like, mm. oh my god, I can see the moves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Wow. That's uh, well, I mean, I love ballet and uh, that's something that's nice. That's of course, uh, one of the benefits of, uh, of aging, um, you know, for a guy is that uh, I finally came around to ballet and uh, Good for so, you. Uh, so I'm very, I'm personally very happy, but I don't, I can't listen to it while I'm trying to write. In your role as an editor, uh, what advice do you have for writers who are pitching you? I would say you don't need to have a fully fleshed out article at the ready, but you do need to have a fully fleshed out thesis. And that's usually your nut graph. So if you can write a nut graph 
that can explain in no uncertain terms why this story, why now? I had a former editor say in a rather blunt way, always, tell me why I should give a shit (laughs) about this story. And if you have a little data point or something else to hang it on that can say unequivocally, this is why we need this story now. And it illustrates that you've done your homework, that you can advance the conversation around a topic, especially because there's nothing new under the sun. So we need to further what's already out there. So you need to be able to prove that. So I would say, make sure you have a nut graph ready and use that as a pitch and always be willing to revisit, even though it's hard and you want to just press send and be done with it. Everybody needs an editor and you really have to be willing to hand it over to someone, listen to their perspective and then come back and make it better. Yeah, that's right. And uh, and I and I loved. Um, I'm sorry for referring to something that you said before I hit the record button, but uh, it really resonated with me, which is that it's almost once you've got the lead done, that's almost ninety percent of the work. Then uh, <laughs> all your then all your little Lego tiles fall snap <laughs> yes, into place. Everything <laughs> falls into place. Yes, and uh, and I have explained to people. I find myself explaining to people. Yes, if it's at the end of the story, I'm just assuming it's going to get cut. So, you know, or, or not, or not get read. I mean, Mm -hmm. we have the benefit of analytics now and it's so very clear to see how readers jump away from a story midway. You can have a story that's three minute read and the average reader will spend 30, 45 seconds on it. So if you think about how quickly the eye can process and how quickly the brain can process, you know, that's, that's not a lot of reading. It's, it's a few sentences, maybe a graph. Lydia, you have a fascinating career. Can you tell us briefly about your uh, career path and and tell us how you became the writer and editor that you are today? It's been a very long journey. What a long, strange trip it's been to quote the lyrics. Uh, But I have always been a writer and I've always been a journalist, you know, in quotes with a small J since I was around eight years old. And anybody who knows me has heard this story. So if anyone is listening, forgive me, you'll hear it again. I was the kid who went around to people's houses, knocked on their door and asked very nosy questions. And then I would write everything down and I created my neighborhood newsletter of comings and goings. And of course this was in the Bronx. So I had a lot of houses to cover. And that was always really fascinating to me. And certainly, you know, Superman's alter ego, Clark Kent, like, you know, I was the not so mild mannered reporter from for the Daily Planet. And um, from then on, I was always involved in some sort of news, high school newspaper, uh, even middle school newspaper. Um, I studied journalism in college and I took a brief detour when I wasn't able to land a job at a magazine immediately and really needed to move out of my parents' house. I took a job at Random House and I worked in book publishing for a number of years before returning to my first love. And I have been a professional journalist for over 20 years now. (laughs) Wow. Congratulations. And uh, I'm I'm so happy that you mentioned uh, 
you know, our favorite uh, reporter. I'm, I, I am always surprised when a journalist doesn't cite Clark Kent as a role model or Lois Lane um, or Jimmy, for that matter. Uh, it's, ama- it's amazing how many times <laughs> those three have come up in these conversations. So mm-hmm. uh, thank you. for uh, It's a touchstone, as Matthew Arnold might say. 100%. What brings you the greatest joy as a professional writer and editor? Anytime I get a note from someone saying that they're really glad that I covered something because there wasn't really a whole lot of information out there about a particular topic is an incredible validating experience. Um, I've gotten notes from people all over the world. And sometimes when you're writing and you're really focused on a deadline and then you just push a story out there, you really don't know who's reading and how they're going to receive it. So when I, when I do get a note like that from a reader, sorry, PR people, but it's not quite the same thing. (laughs) Um, It's, it's, it really resonates with me. And likewise for the stories that I edit, if, someone does find value in what a contributor's take is on a certain subject and they receive a note saying this was really helpful whether it's on social media or they send an email or drop a comment somewhere it's it's extremely important to know that your work has a life of its own out there which sometimes you forget when you're in the business of doing it day to day Okay, that was my conversation with writer and editor Lydia Dishman. I love talking about writing and editing with seasoned professionals such as Lydia. I always learn something new, and I always feel grateful for being part of such a wonderful profession. Until next time, take care and be well. That wraps up another episode of Paid by the Word, a podcast featuring conversations with writers, editors, and media professionals. We are grateful for your attention and we wish you all the very best. Stay safe and be well. Bye-bye.